Gospel of John, the Gospel of John chapter 9, uh, sorry, chapter 5 this morning. Uh, it was Psalm 9. I'm really off this morning, but it's Mark, it's, oh, John, <laughs> John chapter 5. I'll just stop talking and start preaching. Maybe I'll get, get a little better here. John chapter 5, we're going to look at verses 30 through 47. The title of the message is The Power of a Testimony. The Power of of a testimony, John chapter 5, starting in verse 30. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and a shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given to me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is, it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe in me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Father, we bow our, our heads and our hearts before you this morning as we seek to understand this testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ to his own divinity, this explanation of Jesus, the God-man, fully God, fully man, who explains to us how it is that we can know beyond the shadow of a doubt that these testimonies all point to Christ. Help us to understand this morning what Jesus is saying. And help us to apply these truths to our life so that we would be transformed, so that we would be encouraged, so that we would be emboldened, so that we would be ready to face the week that you have for us, that we would do the good works that you've ordained, that we should walk in them as children of the light. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Mormonism started in the spring of 1820 when Joseph Smith claimed that he received a vision from God. Smith said that after he had been praying about which church denomination he should join, that God the Father instructed him 
that all of these denominations and all of these existing churches were wrong. So he shouldn't join any of them. And over the next decade, Smith testified that he had several angelic visions and eventually was told by God that he was going to be used to reestablish the true Christian church. The angel Moroni then led Joseph Smith to a field in upstate New York where he supposedly dug up some golden plates. These plates eventually were translated into what today is known as the Book of Mormon. Special, spectacle, special spectacles and a seer's stone were used to read the ancient Egyptian hieroglyphics, and Smith dictated this new revelatory information, which was all written down and recorded in the original 1830 Book of Mormon. Since all of it is a bit unbelievable, Joseph Smith utilized the testimony of three witnesses, Oliver Cowdery, David Whitmer, and Martin Harris. The testimony of these three witnesses is on the front page of every Book of Mormon to this very day. Here is an excerpt of what this testimony of the three witnesses says. Quote, Be it known unto all nations, kindreds, tongues, and people, unto whom this work shall come, that we, through the grace of God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, have seen the plates which contain this record. Goes down a little bit further in a long testimony again on the front pages of the Book of Mormon. And then they say this, quote, And we declare with words of soberness that an angel of God came down from heaven and he brought and laid before our eyes that we beheld and saw the plates and the engravings thereon. And we know that it is by the grace of God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ that we beheld and bear record that these things are true. Now, these witnesses were bold, deliberate, and purposeful in what they wrote. They were an intricate part of bringing credibility and believability into this story of Joseph Smith. They all served as early leaders in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and then they all defected. All three of these who gave their testimony, known as the three witnesses, defected from the faith. All three witnesses recanted their citation and walked away from the Mormon church. All three were excommunicated from the Mormon church. One of the three started his own sect. Two of the three later, after visiting many other churches and having various things happen in their lives, recanted their recantation. And they rejoined the Mormon church. But it was too late. The damage had been done. And by this time, it was clear that none of these witnesses were reputable men. And that they were all in this hoax together. Furthermore, there are no golden plates, plates or golden tablets that have ever been seen by any other man than Joseph Smith these three witnesses, a little bit later, there's eight other witnesses that also claim that they see these plates, but they're nowhere to be seen today. You know, the power of a testimony is indeed a forceful thing. The testimony of a person should not be quickly ridiculed or relegated as unimportant. But when you examine the testimony of someone, two things should be considered with great care. Number one, what is the validity of the statement being offered? 
in the Book of Mormon, basically it gives the history of how Jesus, after the ascension, went up into heaven, came down into North America, started a whole nother work, which eventually went down into South America, to where eventually all of the uh, followers of that religion were died off, and only Moroni was left, and now come show Joseph Smith the plates that give the story of the Book of Mormon. The question is, is, is there validity to that story? Is there any archaeological evidence? Is there any sense from the Bible, the most authoritative piece of work on the planet, to give any credence to anything like this ever happening? So when we read the testimony of someone, we should first ask, what's the validity of the statement being offered? And secondly, what's the value of a person's character? In other words, is the person who is giving this statement true and right? Can the person be trusted? Can their claim be legitimate? And is the person's life who's making the claim above reproach? Well, this morning, I want to give you five witnesses to the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. Five testimonies that all undeniably point to the fact that Jesus is divine, that he is the Messiah, and that he is equal with God. None of these five have ever recanted. None of these five have ever reneged. None of these five have ever been revoked. None of these five have ever renounced, retracted, or recanted their statement. As you will soon see, these five witnesses provide an airtight case. Their testimonies are irrefutable, undeniable, and beyond dispute. You can take these five testimonies to the bank. You can take these five testimonies and believe in them with all your heart. You can depend on these five testimonies with your life. As you remember, a couple of weeks ago, we looked at how Jesus, the Son, is equal with God the Father. And earlier in the Gospel of John chapter 5, we saw how Jesus is equal with God in working, in being, in knowing, in resurrecting, in judging, in honor, and in regenerating. Then last week we were encouraged as we were reminded that the Father has granted the Son life in himself and has given him all authority to execute judgment. For an hour is coming, we read last week, when all will hear his voice. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Now that brings us to verse 30, where we read, in a sense, a summary of all these things, where Jesus said, John 5, 30, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. In the beginning of verse 30, Jesus is not saying that he is not capable when he says, I can do nothing on my own. He's not saying, I'm not capable of doing something on my own in the sense that he has no power or no ability. What he's saying is, is that since he and the Father are one, and since he and the Father are of the same essence and of the same mind and of the same being, he would never do anything apart from the Father. And that's how much he loves the Father. That's how much he depends on the Father. That's how much he desires and wants to do the Father's will. He's saying, I would never, ever, ever teach you or do any work apart from the power and the authority and the like-mindedness of my Father. And I wonder this morning if the same thing could be said about you. 
Are you so in tune with the Father in heaven that you would never even attempt to do one single thing on your own? Are you so dependent on your Father in heaven that you would never venture to step out on your own strength? Are you so in love with the Father that you would never even want to explore doing anything, thinking anything, saying anything that would ever contradict his word? And Jesus continues here in verse 30 to talk about how even when he's acting as the judge, he is in perfect harmony with the Father. He is in complete agreement with the Father. He is consistently judging exactly according to the Father's will. His judgment is right. His judgment is just. And it is in line with the Father. It was the Father who sent him into the world. It was the Father who gave him an assignment to do. It was the Father who gave all life and power and authority to the Son. And the Son never missed a beat. He never missed an opportunity. He never deviated from doing the Father's will. And even so, verse 31 says, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. Jesus is not saying that somehow he's not telling the truth. That's not his point. He's not saying if I'm the only one who says it, it's not true. He doesn't mean it in that sense. He's simply acknowledging that in the Jewish mindset, they needed two or uh, three witnesses testifying that what Jesus is saying is true. And this goes back to Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15, where Moses wrote, a single witness shall not suffice. It's only on the evidence of two or three witnesses shall a charge be established. And so here we see the need of not just Christ's own testimony, but the need of two are three witnesses to bring verification. And Jesus endorses this idea himself later in Matthew chapter 18 when he talks about church discipline and he says that basically if you're approaching somebody in sin and they're not listening to you, you need to take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So here in John 5, Jesus is simply speaking in the legal context. He is saying that his testimony would not be considered legally valid in a trial by human standards unless it is verified or corroborated by other sources. And the issue was not whether or not his testimony was true, but the issue was whether or not his opponents would believe him. Would the average Jewish person believe just Jesus giving his own testimony or would they need two or three witnesses in their own mind to make what Jesus is saying more authoritative? And it's not that Jesus really needs man's approval for he is authority in and of himself. But according to the Jewish mindset, I believe here we see Jesus is happy to oblige and to offer them no less than five witnesses to the fact that he and the Father are one. And these five witnesses will never falter. These five witnesses will never flinch. These five witnesses will never fail. They have stood the test of time. They have overcome every accuser. They have conquered every doubt. And they have given the exact same testimony and have affirmed all that Jesus has ever said and ever done and that he is the Son of God. So here we go. You ready for the five witnesses? Number one. The testimony of John the Baptist. The testimony of John the Baptist. Now we're in verse 32 where we read this. Jesus says, There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. 
Now, I know I've already given you the first witness is John the Baptist, and you're thinking, well, maybe he's talking about the Baptist here, but you need to know that there's this, this possibly, and I believe most likely in verse 32, is actually a reference to God the Father. I believe that for a couple of reasons. One is the New King James Version and the NASB translation both capitalize the word he, which just simply means that, that when he says the testimony he bears about me is true, the word he there is capitalized. Now, most of you know that in the original language in Greek, there are no capital letters. Or there's no distinguishing between you know uppercase and lowercase. So it's an interpreter's uh, and wisdom or interpretation based on many factors to whether they capitalize or something. I think the main reason that verse 32 is actually a reference to the Father and not to John the Baptist is simply because it's in the present tense indicating an ongoing witness. And by the time this gospel was written, John the Baptist was already dead. And in addition to this, it assumed that Jesus would be referring to the greatest possible witness, which would have been his father and not his cousin. So it seems more likely that verse 32 is actually a reference to the Father and not to John the Baptist. And I'll look at that. You'll see it a little bit more clearly when we get to verses 36 and 37. Uh, but for now, let's just say this. The Jews, as Jesus is talking, are guessing in their mind, well, who's he talking about? Who is this greater witness? And Jesus knew that they're probably thinking of a human witness. And so he begins in verse 33 to start now very clearly in verse 33 with that first witness of John the Baptist. And here's your next blank. If you're taking notes, John the Baptist bore witness to the truth. He bore witness to the truth. There in verse 33, now for sure, talking about John the Baptist, he says to them, you sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. The Gospel of John uses the word witness, or the word testimony, 47 times. And when that word is used in the verb form, it simply means to bear witness. And when it's used in the noun form, it means to give a testimony. So you're either bearing witness, verbal, or you're bearing a testimony, the word testimony being a noun. Uh, this Greek word means to confirm. It means to attest to something. It refers to having a personal knowledge of. In the New Testament, to bear witness to or to give a testimony of means that you're willing to suffer for what you say, even to the point of martyrdom or dying. That's what it means. When you give your account, when you give your testimony, when you bear witness, you're putting your life on the line. And there's no doubt that John the Baptist is an A1 witness. He, he gave his life for his testimony. He became a martyr for the Christian faith. I mean, this guy was legit. He was the first prophet to prophesy in over 400 years. He lived in the wilderness. He, he ate locust and honey. He had a sweet leather belt. I mean, this guy was for real, right? He had a beard like David Crowder. That's like a big one of those, you know, you see on... You know, so he, I mean, this guy was radical for Christ. And you know what John the Baptist did? He was the first human witness to the deity of Jesus Christ. Just reviewing a few times we've already read in this gospel where we see John the Baptist being this witness. John 1:19 says, and this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? And a little bit later in verse 23, he said, I am the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. And so what we understand about John the Baptist is that he is a forerunner. He is here to get God's people ready. He, he's simply saying, I'm here to get y'all ready for Jesus. So y'all better get ready. 
Now, you better get ready because he's coming. There's one coming after me who's greater than I am. And John the Baptist continues to talk. They say, are you Elijah? Are you one of the prophets? Who are you? And he says, look, I have come to baptize you with water, but one stands among you whom you don't know, who when he comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not even worthy to untie. So this man is a witness. He's humble, but he's bold. He's clear, and he is in your face as a testimony for Christ. And so John the Baptist doesn't even believe he's worthy to be mentioned in the same sentence with Jesus. John the Baptist would have said, he's so beyond me. He's so much better than me. He's so much higher than me. And then we read in John 1:29 when he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's John the Baptist. He's a witness for Christ. He's saying, don't look at me. Look at the Lamb. Don't ask about me. Ask about Jesus. Don't take an interest in me. Take an interest in him who can wash your sins away. Behold him. Look to him. Adore him. That's what John the Baptist was all about. That's why he says in John 1.30, this is he of whom I said, after me comes one who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. John the Baptist is saying, Jesus outranks me. Jesus was before me. Jesus created me. Only Jesus can save. I have one purpose, the Baptist is saying, in essence. I have one purpose, and that's to point to Christ. I have one job to do, and that's to preach the gospel and to baptize with water. The very title, uh, every title of every sermon that I ever preach is Jesus. Every conversation that I ever have could be summarized in one word. It's Jesus. There's only one thing that I think about when I lay in bed at night. It's Jesus. That's what John the Baptist is all about. John chapter 1, verse 32 says, John says, I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he was sent. But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and I have borne witness that he is the son of God, only the Holy Spirit can reveal this truth. Only the Holy Spirit can revive a dead soul. Only the Holy Spirit can regenerate a dead heart. Only the Holy Spirit can illuminate your mind, convict you of your sin, and fill you with the presence of the living God. John the Baptist got that. He's showing us it's a work of God the Father, but it's also a work of the Spirit. And both the Father testify and the Spirit testify that Jesus is the Son of God. A few chapters later, John chapter 3, John says this, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. He says, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. In other words, John the Baptist is saying, hey, I'm just the best man. My job is to prepare the room for the bridegroom. His name is Jesus. I'm not to get in his way. It's Jesus that you want to be married to. It's Jesus that is is the one who receives all the honor and all the praise. My job as the best man is to serve the bridegroom. And then this is where John the Baptist says, he must increase, I must decrease. It was a joy for John to take a back seat. It was a privilege for him to play second fiddle. 
it was an honor for him to announce, make straight the way of the Lord. John the Baptist, an incredible witness. And yet we also read in the next verse, verse 34, and your next blank says this, Jesus fought to save souls, not just to win arguments. He fought to save souls, not just to win arguments. Notice verse 34 says, not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. So Jesus is saying, I'm going to give you a bunch of testimonies. The first one formally here is going to be John the Baptist, but I'm telling you all this stuff, not just because I want to crush you. I'm telling you all this stuff not to just outdo you. I'm telling you all this stuff not just to make you look bad. I'm telling you all this stuff because I want to save you. I want to bring you to the saving knowledge of who I really am. It's not about a theological debate. It's about Christ pleading for the souls of those who came to save. And I think there's a, a beautiful picture here, a clear view in this verse, verse 34, for us to see the loving and tender heart of the Lord Jesus Christ. At the end of the day, he was not trying to have a knock-down, drag-out argument. He wanted to save lost sinners. He cared about people and their eternal destiny. He said again, I have said these things to you so that you may be saved. I think we could take a note from Jesus here and ask ourselves, what is your goal when you get into conversations as you're trying to prove the divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you seeking more to prove others wrong or to pour out the mercy of Christ? Do you desire to win the debate or to see a soul delivered from hell. Because there's got to be a certain approach and a certain attitude and a certain love, not only for the argument, but for the person that you're arguing with, which is why we're reminded from the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 3.15, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that is in you, but do it with gentleness and respect something about young men who just love to debate something about young women who are pretty good at it too you know there's something about us when we're young in our faith and we discover all that the bible says we're ready to be evangelistic and apologetic to the glory of god but my fear is is that in a church like ours our goal is just to mow people down to hit them over the head with the word and we stop caring for their soul. Don't forget that our goal in evangelism is God does the heavy lifting, you're just a messenger. God does the changing, you're just the channel. And so you come at these people prayed up, concerned for their soul, reach out to them, befriend them, love them, and let the message work through you in a way that would truly honor Christ. Then we read in verse 35, your next blank says this, John the Baptist was a burning and shining lamp. He's a burning and a shining lamp. That's exactly what verse 35 says. Again, Jesus speaking of the Baptist says he was a burning and shining lamp and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. Now, let me just be clear here. John the Baptist is not the light. He is a lamp. And even in the original language, there's a difference between being the source of light and a smaller lamp of the light. In fact, this is what we read earlier in John chapter 1, verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light 
that all might believe through him. He, speaking of the Baptist, was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. And so what we are seeing here is that John the Baptist is more of a reflection. He's not the source of light, but a carrier of the light. He's not the essence of light, but an evangelist for the light. He did not hide his light under a bushel. He holds high the light of Christ for all to see. In verse 35 tells us that apparently the Jews initially were interested in John the Baptist and in his ministry. I mean, he says, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. So as Jesus is talking to these unbelieving Jews, he said, even you know, John the Baptist, initially you were kind of going out to him and hearing his message and considering what he's saying. Maybe it could be here that we could consider Jesus's parable of the soils, the four soils, and we could consider that Jesus taught that as for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation and persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. Maybe some of Jesus's audience were guilty of that. They received John the Baptist's message initially with some joy for a little while, but then they fell away. This was most likely the experience of John the Baptist's audience. Many were intrigued. Many were curious. Many came to listen. Many were called to come to Christ, but only a few were chosen. Only a few were converted. Only a few came into the family of God. Such is the work of the sovereignty of our great God in salvation. Listen to what A.W. Pink writes in his commentary on John. On this verse, he says this, quote, burning inwardly, shining outwardly, John's light had not been hid under a bushel, but it had shone before men. Then he writes this, ah, dear reader, will the Savior be able to say of you in a coming day, he was a burning and shining lamp? Is the light that is within thee burning, or is it just flickering? Is your lamp trimmed and so shining, or is it shedding but a feeble and sickly glow? Great is the need for burning and shining lamps in the world today. The shadows are fast lengthening, the darkness increases, and the midnight hour draws on apace. And that, knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. The night is far spent and the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Love the challenge there by A.W. Pink. Wise will we be this morning to listen to this testimony and to emulate this testimony of John the Baptist, for it was Jesus who said of him that there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist among those who have been born of women. John the Baptist, a testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so not only do we see in this passage the testimony of John the Baptist, but we also have your second testimony, number two, the testimony of the works of Christ. If you look at verse 36 with me, the testimony of the works of Christ, Jesus then says, but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. So in a sense, he's saying, you've heard about the Baptist. I got something greater for you. And right here, he's going to include his own works because he says this, for the works that the father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the father has sent me. 
Now, as we've been discussing in our exposition of John, miracles in and of themselves don't save anybody. If that were true, everybody who ever saw Jesus do a miracle would have been saved. Most of the Jews who saw him do the miracles never came to repentance and faith. And so miracles don't save anyone. And what I, what I mean by this is that you don't necessarily get saved just by seeing a sign or, or a miracle that people wanted to see more and more, but they weren't necessarily converted. The people followed Jesus at times, he said, and, and rebuffed them for following him for free food. Uh, Pilate wanted to see Jesus do a miracle. In Acts chapter 8, Simon the sorcerer wanted to pay the apostles money so he could have uh, some of their power. In Acts 24, Felix wanted to see Paul do a miracle. In, in that sense, miracles don't save anyone. But that doesn't mean that miracles don't play a part. And so your next blank says this, believe on the account of the works. This is what Jesus is saying. It's one of his testimonies that point to his very uh, deity is the works that he did. And he actually encourages us to believe based on these works. And he says it many times throughout the Gospel of John. In John chapter 10, verse 25, he said, The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. John 10, 38, Believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. John 14, 11, Believe on account of the works themselves. So Jesus was quick to point to the works are a testimony and an evidence of the fact that I am the Son of God. The works point people to Christ and force the issue of some type of explanation of how could he do what he's doing. And the correct explanation is, well, Jesus is God. And the appropriate response is, well, if he did a miracle, which means he is God, then I need to repent and believe and follow him. And so I believe Jesus is saying all the works that I do bear witness about the fact that the Father has sent me. But I also think there's something special about these miracles in John, and this is it in your next blank. Believe on account of the signs. Believe on account of the signs. There's two different words for the word work and the word sign. In the Gospel of John, we have no less than seven specific special signs that point with great clarity to the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus, as recorded in the Gospel of John, does at least these seven. Now, he did way more than seven, but John only picked seven for a certain point. And John calls these signs or wonders. And the idea is that each one of these is to serve as a signpost pointing to the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. That in the Gospel of John, he's using very specific miracles to point to the power of Christ as fulfilling Old Testament prophecy about the fact that this one must be the Messiah. And Nicodemus is the first one who gives us a hint about this in John chapter 3, verse 2. You remember when Jesus was approached by Nicodemus at night, Nicodemus said, Rabbi, we know. We know that you're a teacher from God. Why? For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. God, uh, Nicodemus knows that Jesus must be from God. You say, Adam, I'm still not seeing it. Well, turn to Isaiah chapter 35. Isaiah chapter 35, we see here a specific prophecy that was given by uh, Isaiah that could only be fulfilled by the Messiah. No other man could fulfill this prophecy of Isaiah 35, 
verses 4 and 5. Here's what Isaiah writes. So to those who have an anxious heart, be strong. Fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Now, if we had time to unpack the context of Isaiah, I would explain to you that I think that he's prophesying about the millennial kingdom and what Christ will do as he reigns as the king for a thousand years in the millennium. But remember last week, we talked a whole lot about already, but not yet. And so the point is, is that Jesus already begins fulfilling these prophecies, not in the millennium, but in his first advent. And if we could take the time, we could see miracle after miracle after miracle done in John and in other gospels fulfilling this Isaiah prophecy. Only Christ could do this. Only Christ could fulfill these works in exactly the way they were done. And all of this was to point to the fact that Jesus is the one. Now, it is recorded in Matthew, that time where John the Baptist says, hey, send word to Jesus and say, are you the one or is it somebody else? And you remember what Jesus responded to him? He said, tell John this. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the good news preached to them. In other words, Jesus is saying, I fulfilled this prophecy. All the prophecy in Isaiah, I am the one. I have fulfilled it. And so we understand here today that we can look not only to John the Baptist, but we can look to the works of Christ himself, which point to the clear testimony that he is the son of God. Now, there's a third witness, and this one would be the greatest of all. Number three, the testimony of God the Father. The testimony of God the Father. Their next little subpoint blank says this, the testimony of God, uh, the testimony God has borne concerning his Son. Look at verse 37. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me, his voice you have never heard, his form you have never heard. Seen. Now, Jesus is now appealing to the strongest witness possible, the testimony of God the Father. This was, uh, is most likely the testimony that Jesus already referred to in verse 32 when he said, another will give witness about me, and I know that witness is true. Uh, we also read in 1 John 5, 9, if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. So the father clearly testifies that Jesus is the son. To believe the father is to believe the son. To believe the son is to believe the father. Uh, That the testimony of men is good, but the testimony of God the father is greater. And we see the testimony of the father revealed in so many ways. B, there in your outline, says the father's voice affirming the son The father's voice is serving the son. Uh, On no less than three occasions, we're told that the father's audible voice came out of the clouds as he publicly and vocally affirmed his son. The first time was at Jesus' baptism when he said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. The second time was at the transfiguration when there was a voice from the cloud that said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. The third time was when Jesus was saying in John 12 that his hour has now come and that the father was going to glorify his name and then a voice 
from heaven said, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. So the Father has testified verbally, audibly, that Jesus is his son. The next blank there says, the revelation of God is for his children. The revelation of God is for his children. And so we've read verse 37, and the Father who has sent me has borne witness about me. His voice you have heard from uh, his form you have seen, verse 38, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. The unbelieving Jews neither heard nor saw the Father. The unbelieving Jews neither wanted to change or to confess their own sins. They, they listened to the Father, but they listened to the wrong Father. Jesus said they listened to their Father, the devil. Right? Those who do not believe cannot see and they cannot hear. God had revealed himself time and time and time again. God the Father had revealed himself to Jacob, Genesis 32, 30. Jacob said that I have seen God face to face. He revealed himself to Moses, Exodus 33, 11. The Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend. He revealed himself to Gideon, Judges 6, 22. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord, and Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. He revealed himself to Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah sees God in the throne room, which was probably a vision of Christ, but nevertheless he says, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Now all of that culminates into Hebrews 1. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, where we read, Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. So we're saying all along, God the Father's affirming the Son, affirming the Son, affirming the Son. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, on whom he appointed the heir of all things, through him he created the world. He, speaking of the Son, is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. Here's what we're saying. Look back at verse 38 again, when he says, For you do not believe the one whom he has sent, um, you, you have his word abiding in you. Verse 37, his voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen. An unbelieving Jew would never have seen the form of God because God is spirit. But now that Christ is here, he's God in the flesh. And he's saying, look, you can see my form, you can hear my voice, just like God the Father has revealed his voice and his form through the angel of the Lord, theophany experiences of the Old Testament. But all along, you would not. You would not believe. You would not accept. You would not accept the Father's witness. He's been doing it all along. Or to say it another way, D in your outline, the word of the Father only abides in those who believe in the Son. The reason that they rejected the testimony of the Father is that Christ did not abide in them. The word of God only abides in those who truly believe by faith. The word of Christ, the word of God, only abides in those who have been regenerated. It's 1 John 4, 13 and 14. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he is given of his spirit and we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. 
To the Father has made his testimony clear. There is no greater witness than the testimony of the Father. There's no greater testimony than the testimony of the Father. There's no excuse for these unbelieving Jews except for their own sin and their own unbelief. Warren Wiersbe wrote on this passage, quote, if we reject that which is true, we will ultimately receive that which is false. Pretty much summarizes it, right? They've rejected the Father all along, so now they're rejecting Jesus, and they're willing to receive false information because they won't accept the truth. Don't reject the testimony of God the Father. Now, there's a fourth and a fifth testimony here. Number four, the testimony of the Holy Scriptures. The testimony of the Holy Scriptures. Next blank says the Scriptures clearly point to Jesus as the Lord of life. Verse 39, now he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and that it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people. Now, again, the scriptures clearly point to Jesus as the Lord of life. In fact, I have a a t-shirt that says Jesus is the main point of your Bible. It was from a disciple now that that we did when I was a youth pastor, and I've I've gotten a lot of comments about that t-shirt, both positive and negative, because I believe it really does summarize. That's the whole point that God revealed to us, the Word of God, because He was pointing us to Christ. The thread of redemption runs throughout the entire Old Testament that we must believe in Jesus. This is what Jesus says on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, 4, when He says, these are my words that that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And so Jesus is saying, look, the Torah, the prophets, the Psalms, all scripture points to Christ. That's the point of the whole book. And if anybody is a student of the Old Testament and they don't see Christ, then they've missed the most important part of the Old Testament. If anyone studies the Old Testament and they don't see Christ, then they need to go back and study it again. If anyone carefully looks at the point of the Old Testament and they don't see Christ, then they have been blinded by their own sin. One commentator wrote, an open heart and open eyes will produce an open mind. But we must begin with an open Bible. We take all of Scripture, and it all points to Christ. Peter says it this way when he says in 2 Peter 1.19, he's basically discussing how he had seen Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration. And then he says, but I've got a more important witness than this. I, I saw him on the Mount. I mean, I've seen the resurrected Christ, and I saw him even before that at the transfiguration. But then he says in 2 Peter 1.19, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. In other words, Peter is saying, look, between the first advent and the second advent of Christ, if you haven't been able to be a personal witness to Jesus like I have, Peter's saying, look to the word, look to the scripture. They are verifying, they are authoritative. But it's not the scriptures in and of themselves. It's the scriptures interpreted. That's your next blank. The scriptures must be interpreted correctly by the help of the Holy Spirit. Because here's the truth. The Jews had Old Testament scriptures. A lot of people today use the scriptures. But they use the scriptures plus. Or 
they use the scriptures and they have an awful interpretation of what the Bible's really saying. And so you can't just hold up the Bible and say, this is the book like Joel Osteen does every Sunday and say that you're honestly preaching the word of God. You've got to dig into the word. You've got to expose the word. There's got to be proper exegesis and exposition of both studying the word and bringing God's word to God's people or you will get off course and consider other documents as authoritative as the Bible. That's what the Roman Catholic Church does. That's what the Mormon Church does with the Book of Mormon. In fact, they call the Book of Mormon the most correct book. That's what the Jehovah Witnesses do with the Watchtower magazine. Every other faith outside of true Christianity will begin to get off of Scripture. And that's what leads them into a very damning approach to how they interpret the Bible because it moves them off the gospel and onto man's writings. And that's why we've got to come back and realize, no, 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 it's all about the scripture. It's about the word of God being interpreted correctly. And that can only be done with the help of the Holy Spirit. It can only be done through good study. Yes, but you need to be born again. If you're not born again, you will not see the Bible the way God intended for you to see the Bible. So if you in any way deny the gospel and deny the authority of Scripture, then that demonstrates that you're now approaching this book as above it instead of under it. And what we've got to do is come under the Word of God, realizing as Peter continues his argument in that passage out of 2 Peter chapter 1, he says, no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of men, but men spoke from God and they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Listen to me. The Holy Spirit gave the word. The Holy Spirit must be present to help you interpret the word. It's the Holy Spirit that must open your eyes. It must, he must open your ears. And this is why we need to pray while we read the Bible. We talk about read and pray. And when we're praying, we're asking the Holy Spirit, help me. Oh God, by the power of your spirit to understand your word. Because if the Holy Spirit's not present, enlightening your mind to the truth of the gospel, you're going to get off just like that. You're going to read it and you're going to say, well, to me, that means, well, I heard another story. Well, this preacher over here says, who cares? You, if you're born again, have the light of the world living in you. And you have a responsibility to interpret the word of God through careful study and through the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is exactly why John writes the apostle in 1 John 2:27, but the anointing that you received from him abides in you and you have no need that anyone should teach you. Now I know some of you like that verse. You're like, "Amen. Nobody's going to teach me nothing. I'll just stay at home on Sunday. I don't have to hear what my preacher says cuz I got the spirit." And I've talked to people like that. I got the spirit. And they're going directly contrary to the word of God. I mean, just diametrically opposed. So the idea when he says you don't need anyone to teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. So the teaching of the Holy Spirit will never contradict the word of God. The teaching of the Holy Spirit will always bring you under the word of God. And there's other believers who are holding on to the gospel and to the word of God on the major issues. You will believe the same. Now, granted, obviously, there's a ton of secondary and tertiary issues that we could debate. But uh, the point is that at least the gospel has got to be pure. The scripture has to be accurate. And the means of the Holy Spirit are necessary to help us see that. Now, one other thing here, the scriptures bring affirmation 
and glory, not other people. The scriptures bring affirmation and glory, not other people. In verse 44, he says, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? And so Jesus is saying, basically, what you guys are doing is you're trying to get affirmation from other rabbis, from other Jews, from other people, a bunch of, you're garnering a lot of support from other men to support your view. You need to be seeking God and him alone. You, you need his affirmation, and it comes through the scripture. Let me give you one final testimony. Number five, the testimony of Moses. Now, this might kind of come as a little bit of a shock. If you're tracking, you're like, all right, this is good, man. John the Baptist, and you got the works of Christ, and you got the Father, and you got the Word. And now he goes back to Moses, but check this out. Your next blank, the testimony of Moses, the A says, Moses condemns those who misinterpret the law because Jesus pulls a punch right here at the end of this discourse because the Jews are like, why aren't you like Moses? And we believe in Moses and Moses is the man. Who do you think you are? Verse 45, do not think that I will accuse you to the father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. Now he's calling him out on the carpet. And he's saying, you guys have exalted Moses too far. And you've added to Moses' law a law of your own. And because of that, if Moses were standing here, right here, right now, and all you had was the Torah, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, that's all you had, Moses would condemn you to your face. He would condemn you right here, right now. You know why? The next blank says, because Moses wrote about me. Right? Moses wrote about Jesus. We know that time and time again, we read here in verse 46, for if you believe Moses, you would believe in me, for he wrote of me. The first place Moses wrote of Jesus was in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, when he gives the proto euonvelion, the first prophecy of the gospel in the Old Testament, Genesis 3:15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his hill. Now that's that's uh, God talking to the serpent, and he's, Moses is the one recording it because he wrote Genesis, and he's just simply recording, look, Satan may strike Christ's hill, but Christ is going to crush his head. That's the first time in the Bible Moses wrote about Jesus. Another time would have been Numbers 24, 17, when Moses writes this, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheath. Another prophecy of an already, Moses is already seeing it, but not yet fulfilled until the Messiah comes. One of the most famous places that Moses wrote about Christ would have been in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, when he said this, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me among you from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. So Moses is already talking about Christ time and time again, as we've already read on the walk to Amazus when Jesus said, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them what the scripture said concerning himself. Moses wrote about Jesus. Here's the best part to me. See, Moses' writings and Jesus' words are a continuum, not a contradiction. There's no contradiction here between the Jewish faith and Christianity. What I mean by that is what Moses wrote and what Jesus wrote is the same thing. What I don't mean by that is that today, Jews who reject Jesus are true Christians. They're not. We, we understand that. But what I'm saying is there's really not like two fighting 
religions, what should be is that the Jews see through Moses, Christ is Christ all along, and when Christ comes, they should bow down and call him Lord, but they don't. So at that point, the Jews veer off. Even now, they're veering off by trusting more in Moses than they're trusting in the true God of the Bible by following God's son, Jesus Christ. But there should be, the way the proper interpretation should be, there's a continuum. Everything Moses taught and everything Jesus taught is the same. Moses didn't teach a salvation by works. He didn't teach a salvation by keeping the law. He didn't teach a salvation that was somehow Jewish in its culture and true identity. He taught a religion of faith in the God of the gospel and a sacrifice as is necessary to pay for the sins of his people, which all pointed to Christ. Moses wasn't pointing away from Christ. He's pointing to Christ. And so in verse 47, he says, but if you do not believe his writings, the writings of Moses, how will you believe in my words? You know what he's saying? You never really believed in Moses. You never got it. You never really understood what Moses was saying because all along Moses was pointing to me. All of his writings point to me. If you really believed in him, you would believe in me. And we see how Jesus even uses this in the parable about Lazarus and the rich man. Remember that? Lazarus was, uh, was the poor man and there was a rich man and they die and go to heaven and it flips. And then the, uh, the, the, the man Lazarus wanted Jesus to go back and or wanted the poor man to go back and share with his brothers. You get the idea of what I'm saying, right? And, and, they, and, and then this is what Jesus says. He says, he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. You know what he's saying? You can get saved off Moses because a lot of people did because they saw him who Moses prophesied about. You could get saved by just looking at the Pentateuch. Because God sovereignly works in the hearts of his people by faith to repent and believe in Christ as a provision and the only means by which our sins could be washed away. It's so amazing to see how Christ magnifies the teachings of Moses. He fulfills the teachings of Moses. He allows us to see the teachings of Moses the proper way that was always pointing to Christ. It was the great theologian Augustine who said, the New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed. The Old Testament is in the New Testament revealed. That's a lot to chew on there, but the idea is that you see one in the other. One explains what's going to happen when you get to the New Testament. You can look back and see more clearly what was really meant by what was said all along. But listen to me, all of this only happens by grace. It only happened, only by grace can you understand the Old, Old Testament. Only by grace can you understand the New Testament. We need to make sure that we don't fall into the same religious tradition and somehow become blind to God's word. Are you so involved in Bible study that we sometimes fail to see Jesus Christ in the word? Are we so interested in theology that we forget to devote our hearts and our lives to Jesus? Are we so quick to attack those who disagree that we have become much more interested in making it known what we are against instead of what we are for? Does our knowledge of the Word of God give us a big head or a burning heart? As you think about that, you can ask yourself these three questions at the very end here. Do you accept the testimonies that Jesus gave? Jesus has got his own list no less than five testimonies. And if you believe in these five testimonies of what Christ is saying, then you must believe in Christ. I call you this day to put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
turn from your sins, turn from your legalism, turn from your false faith, and turn to Christ. Believe in Christ. Next question, are the scriptures enough to bring conversion and new life? We live in a day where people move outside of scripture and they put on a pony show. And they're thinking that through this pony show, somehow you'll be so excited and so emotionally stirred and so wowed by the production that you'll come to Christ. Listen to me. The scripture is all you need. It's the power of the Holy Spirit working through the word of God to change a dead man and make him alive. Number three, are you interpreting the scriptures correctly by the power of the Holy Spirit? Not just about digging, 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 commentary, commentary, commentary. Pray. Ask God, the Holy Spirit, to help you have a conservative, accurate, faithful interpretation of the scripture all along so that you don't get off course. We have these testimonies. The three witnesses of the Mormon faith fell off the deep end. These five testimonies that I've given to you today have stayed true for all time. What will be your testimony on the day you die? Will you stay faithful to testify that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the Savior of the world, and the Savior of your soul? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity to just dig in this morning, have a little Bible study in this place as we desire to not go shallow, but go deep, not to be short sometimes, but to be long, not to be light, but to be heavy, because it does us good to wash our minds with your truth. We're so susceptible to the entertainment of this world that we live shallow, untouched lives today we know it's about heaven or hell. It's about truth or error. It's about Christ or the devil. It's about the testimonies of this book that you gave to us to point to Christ. And I pray, Lord, but by the power of your spirit, as we sing this last song, as we leave this place today, that we would just be in awe of the grandeur of our great Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who is king over all who is Lord over all, who is powerful over all, that we would bring our hurts, that we would bring our lives to the foot of the cross, and that we would magnify the beauty of Jesus Christ in this place, in our lives, throughout this week. To God be the glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.